Hey, good morning, everybody. How are you all doing? Great service so far. Thank you all so much for being here. Thank you for the kids. Thank you for the young people all being um, involved. I hope on Sundays like this, we get a little bit of a glimpse of just what's happening, you know, in the other spaces in this school on a Sunday morning. And we get to see this morning just the, the next generation growing up within this church. One of the beautiful things about Park RP is we're slowly becoming a church that's like very much multi-generational where there's going to be kids that have grown right up through the life of the church. And that's just a really beautiful thing. There's one one guy that is serving really hard today, I think he's still in here. Is Eddie still here? He left? I was going to thank Eddie for doing the slides today, but he's already out of here. He always, if you see Eddie, tell him he's a rock star for doing the slides. If you've got a, if you've got a Bible, please turn to, as has already been read, turn to Luke chapter 1. We're going to be reading today, or studying today from verse 57 to verse 80, chapter 1, verse 57, down to verse 80. Thank you to Finn and Simon for reading so well already. This morning, we are in the third week of Advent. Advent just feels like it's kind of flying through. Next Sunday is Christmas Eve. Hopefully, you already knew that, and now you're not driven to distraction for the rest of the service. Christmas Eve is next Sunday. Um, but So we've got a little bit less time, in a sense, to just stop and to pause, um, to take a breath and, and, and recalibrate uh, for ourselves what the story of Christmas really and truly means. So that's what, that's what we're going to do this morning. Um, because as you guys know, there is a deeper significance to what we're celebrating at, in the Christmas season, deeper than the, the food, dif- deeper than the parties, deeper than the, the presents, deeper, um, a deeper significance than, than gathering with, with friends and a deeper significance than even gathering with our families. There are many things that we can begin to tell ourselves that Christmas is a bite, that it's not, which, which is important because not only can, can we be celebrating the wrong thing, but if we focus on the wrong thing, we might not feel that we have anything to celebrate this year when, 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 we, when we do. And likely for each of us, even, even right now, even, even this morning, there are concerns, there are worries, there are, there are fears that we maybe have that, that are vying or fighting for our attention this morning. Fears in, in competition with the most joyful news that should be occupying our minds, that Christ has come as the King and the Savior of the world. But there's, there's typically, often in the life of the believer, an enemy that is seeking to kill our joy, and seeking to destroy our peace and instilling fear where there should be freedom. Today's passage is the part two. It's this kind of like the second episode of the story that we, we looked at back at the first week of Advent when we considered the hidden prayers of two hidden people. Despite all of the seemingly more important issues of the day, God still had ears to hear and he had eyes to see what is unknown and unseen and going unnoticed by others. While the multitudes were praying for issues of national importance, there was this couple, Zachariah and Elizabeth, and they were simply quietly praying for a child. And then when an angel came to tell Zechariah that their prayers would be answered, that his wife of old age would become pregnant, he had reacted in a way that we probably would too, and he, he didn't believe it. He, he was like, I, I don't think that is possible. And maybe you're, you're here today with that same kind of skepticism, feeling 
doubtful that God or Jesus is, 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 is truly believable. Doubtful that there is anything true or, or concrete or, or even possible within Christianity. Well, in Luke chapter 1, Zachariah's unbelief gets him into a little bit of trouble. Gabriel is not impressed with Zachariah's unbelief, and as a rebuke for his doubt, Gabriel says in chapter 1, verse 20, because of your unbelief, you are going to be silent and you're going to be unable to speak from this day until what you think is impossible is made possible. In the waiting for this child to be born, you're going to be quiet. And what we're going to see as this story unfolds today is that not only was Zechariah unable to speak, but he was also unable to hear. Can you, can you imagine that for a second? Walking down the street and silence. Or driving in your car, silence. Waking up in the morning, silence. Some of you guys are thinking, this, is, this sounds good. And then to not only not be able to, to, to hear, but also not be able to, to, to speak all day, nothing but silence, the vacuum of your own thoughts. I was thinking about this and wondering how many of us realize that when we're, when we're, when we're talking, when we're communicating, often we are just as much listening as we are speaking. Do you get that? That, 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 we, that, we, that we speak, we, we talk in the hope of hearing the, the, the right thing or the, the helpful thing, the, the, the valuable advice, the, the affirmation found in being considered and understood and seen. We speak in the hope of hearing the words in return that will resonate and bring, bring comfort and bring clarity to bring us out of isolation and into relationship, relationships that make us feel loved and valued. Maybe even right now we are listening in the hope that we don't feel so alone this Christmas. Zechariah, he spent a season of his life in a state of very literal silence, in a very literal space of, of isolation, which made me wonder for how long in our lives could this be possible? Months? Years? How long might we not be granted words? How long might we have no words? Unable to share or able to articulate or feel we have truly shared or simply told anybody. And maybe you're heading into another Christmas and you're feeling kept silent or kept quiet, feeling unheard, feeling alone. As if there's a part of yourself that remains unshared or, or unspoken, a part of yourself that exists only in the silence of your own thoughts, where you're battling maybe an unspoken enemy that is seeking to kill your joy and seeking to destroy your peace. What's beautiful about our passage today is that when Zechariah is once again granted the gift of speech, he, he, he doesn't speak again, or he doesn't just speak again after many, many months of silence. He doesn't just speak, but he sings. Which means that for all of those months within the vacuum of his individual isolation, something was happening. 
something was, was crystallizing in his life, so much so that when he is able once again to speak, he now has something not just to say, but he has a new song that he wants to sing. When Zechariah regains his voice, he sings, and he sings about finding freedom from his fear. That's what our passage is about today, that out of the silence, Zechariah sings about the coming of the one who means that that which scares us need not. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word speaks life and truth to us. We thank you, God, when there's a world swirling around us and we feel lost or we feel alone, that your word is an anchor to our souls. God, I pray today, God, that through dependency on you, that your spirit would come and invade this space and in this room, God, that you would meet people. God, I pray that there would be transformation this morning in our lives, I pray. In your name, amen. Our passage today, uh, it comes to us in two, two separate sections. Firstly, in Luke chapter 1, we, we have the first part, which is a narrative from verse 56 to 57 to 66. And then we read from 67 through to 80, we have a song or we have a poem, and that's the part that Finn and Simon read for us. And the primary purpose of this first section from verse 57 to 66 is to stir within us, the reader, a sense of anticipation, a sense of wonder, a sense of intrigue. This, this initial narrative portion leads us to consider the wonder of John the Baptist's birth. It's the, it culminates with a question in verse 66, what then will this child be? That's the question the first portion wants us to ask. So let's look at these verses between 57 and 66. We, we pick up where we left off a few weeks ago when Zechariah and Elizabeth have been told that they would have a child. Then in verse 57, it says, now this time came for Elizabeth to give birth and she bore a son. It says in verse 58 that her neighbors and her relatives, they rejoiced. Then in verse 59, we come to the first instance that would have raised some eyebrows and kind of started causing some questions and intrigue in people because it says in verse 59 that on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, which that part was normal. Then it says, and they would have called him Zachariah after his father, but his mother said, no, he shall be called John. And we know this is because back in verse 13, the angel told them to name the boy John. And now Elizabeth is following through and she's doing what the angel commanded her to do. But in verse 61, this confused Elizabeth's neighbors and it confused the, the relatives. They scratched their heads saying, but, but none of your relatives are named John. Where, where, where's this coming from? Where's John coming from? What's with the random names? So maybe some of the parents in the room know these kind of questions from your relatives when you name your child. What's with, what's with the random name? Then in verse 62, it says they made signs to Zechariah because they wanted his input. They wanted his thoughts. Are you, are you good with this? Are you good with this name? Who knew that John was such an such a out there name? Not so many. And this is where we see that not only could Zechariah not speak, but he also couldn't hear because they had to make signs to him asking him, well, what, what do you want the child to be called? So in verse 63, without the ability to speak, John writes on a tablet, the original iPad, and he writes, his name is John. He stands by, he backs up Elizabeth. Then it says this at the very end of verse 63, and they all wondered. 
as in all the neighbors and the relatives, they were filled with wonder, meaning they knew something unusual was happening here. Not only did Elizabeth get pregnant when she was considered too old, and not only did Zachariah mysteriously lose his voice and his ability to hear, but now they're naming the child a name that has no no roots in their, their, their family. The neighbors and the relatives are looking at the circumstances surrounding them and sensing that there is something more here. There's something going on here. But then in verse 67 or 64, wonder turns to fear. Because as soon as Zechariah states his name is John or writes it down, verse 64 says, immediately Zechariah, his mouth was opened and his tongue was loosed and he spoke. He was able to speak again just when he confirms John's name, which sparks this this, this wildfire of of talk and, and, and conversation and questions. Verse 65 said all of these things, the the miraculous conception, the silence, the mysterious name, the regaining of Zechariah's voice, all of these things they were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all he had heard them laid up in their hearts saying, what then will this child be? This first section, it carries the primary purpose of getting us to ask with the same sense of urgency the very same question that Elizabeth and Zachariah's neighbors and relatives were asking. What then will this child be? Zachariah's song then, starting in verse 67, is positioned as a response to this very question. But what is, what is odd when we read through the song that Zachariah goes on to sing, only two verses out of a song that has 12 verses, only two of the verses, verses 76 and verse 77, are actually directly about John, the child that is being asked about. The other 10 verses, the vast majority of the song, is about the birth of Christ, not about the birth of John. And this is the first clue as to what has, has crystallized for Zechariah during this period of silence. Because I can imagine that if a new father was to turn up in the hospital and has written a song to sing in the commemor- to commemorate the birth of his son, and he pulls out his guitar and he starts to sing, and then the mother realizes that he's not singing about their child. That wouldn't go so well. Why, why is Zechariah singing more about Jesus than his son, John? Here's what what Zechariah has has realized with the help of the Holy Spirit. That even though his and Elizabeth's prayer for a child, and even though God granted them a child, and although this was an incredibly, I'm sure, significant moment in their life as parents, Zechariah had the clarity of mind to know his child wasn't what was of greatest significance. There was something more. There was a narrative unfolding with John's birth, not as an end in and of itself. There was something deeper and more crucial occurring in their lives of which baby John was a part, but baby John was not the whole. And what does, what does this mean for us? Well, it means that there are aspects of our lives at face value, moments, memories, or mistakes, or or dreams, or prayers, or people, dreams or prayers that have been fulfilled, and maybe dreams or prayers that have not, that we are tempted to believe are of greatest significance, and they aren't. 
There, there, there is likely an aspect of our lives this morning that is vying for our attempt, attention, tempting us to believe it is the most significant, important thing about us, and it isn't. And understanding this matters because treating that which is not of greatest significance as if it is, is what will riddle us with fear. The fear that, that, that we will lose that significant thing that we have been given. The, the, the fear that we will never receive that significant thing that we long for. The fear that life-altering sickness or illness could happen all over again. The fear that we will never regain what we have lost. The fear that we are already defined by the past and the past cannot be rewritten. You see, Zechariah was able to nurture in his silence the ability to keep in perspective that which he could so easily have begun to believe was the most defining and significant feature of his life, that he was miraculously given a son. And yet he only spends two verses singing about baby John. Rather, he was able, isolated and alone in silence, he was able to grow in his understanding of that which truly was of greatest significance and be attuned and aware of that deeper truth. So let's take a look at Zechariah's song. In verse 68 and verse 69, they they read like this. You can read it with me. In verse 68 and verse 69 of Luke chapter 1, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. One of the most notable things about this song is that when you read through it in the first eight verses that they were all, they all written in the past tense. God, God has visited, God has redeemed, God has spoken, God has saved. And what Zechariah is doing through his song is bringing up the past and he's bringing to mind particularly what God has done to create a particular effect because when Zechariah says, blessed be the God, Lord God of Israel for he has visited and redeemed his people. Yes, Zechariah is singing about God's visiting humanity in the coming of Christ as a baby. But Zechariah is also stirring up in the minds of his original readers a memory from the past when God saved the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt. We see, we see this in repeated references in this song, speaking of the defeat of enemies. Verse, verse 71, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Again in verse 74, that we may be delivered from the hand of our enemies. This is Exodus imagery. The Exodus, Israel's escape from slavery in Egypt was was the primary historical event that shaped and formed the national identity of Israel as a people that were not only chosen by God, but as a people redeemed, a people saved by God. It was, it was God who sent Moses and Aaron to speak to Pharaoh. It was God who sent the plagues. It was God who parted the Red Sea. Verse 72 speaks of the Exodus as an act of God's mercy. And so all in all, any imagery of the Exodus carries incredible weight. It, it is imagery that has a profound, irreducible quality to it. For, for the Jewish people, particularly the imagery of the Exodus and their being as a people saved by God from slavery, slavery 
what would, would give them their, was what gave them their significance and their national identity. They were a people chosen by God, but not only that, they were a people saved, they were a people redeemed by God. But what Zechariah is doing here is taking imagery that was so identity-defining, and he is intentionally extending that imagery from the past into the present. So all of the weight, all of the power, all of the quality of what was so significant in regards to the Exodus is now no longer just in the past, but it is available in the present. The deeper truth that has been so meaningfully forever captured within the Exodus imagery has now become a deeper truth that extends from the past into our lives in the present. Zechariah is saying that that which was true of the Israelites as they walked out of their shackles and away from their enemies in Egypt, as they walked free from bondage in slavery, that which was true for them has become true in Christ for us. That is what Zechariah is singing about. And as we keep reading this song, we, we, we ask, how? How can we experience in our own lives the profound and deeper truth and the deeper freedom found within the Exodus story? Verse 69 tells us, verse 69 reads, God, reads like this, God has raised up a horn of our salvation for us. God has raised up a horn of salvation for us. And the kind of horn that's mentioned here isn't the kind of horn that you might see on this stage. It isn't a, a musical instrument. Rather, the kind of horn mentioned here is the deadly weapon found on the head of most likely a wild ox. It's an animal's horn. Before advances in, in technology, horned animals were naturally selected to wreak havoc in battles. You, you, you can imagine a, char a charging bull or a charging elephant or a charging ox could, could gorge its horns through almost anything that stood in its way. Send, sending an ox into battle would lead to this string of people, one after another, being struck and flung into the air, flung to the side. We're getting stuck on the horn. And so the horn of an ox became a symbol of strength and victory in battle, the defeat of our enemies. Psalm 18 verse 2 reads, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation. Psalm 18 verse 2 reads, the Lord is the gorger of my enemies. And this imagery isn't very Christmassy, is it? <laughs> Christmas carols aren't usually so bloody. People being flung. I was thinking if there, there is an ox standing in the nativity scene, if you have one at home, the ox should at least have horns. This week, as we, we celebrate the birth of Christ, the imagery that we will likely see is, 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 is of meekness and mildness. We'll see and think about the, the humility and the gentleness of God coming as a little baby. We'll think about his vulnerability and his helplessness, the, the manger and the straw and the swaddling clothes. 
And yet, when, when Zacharias sings about Christ's birth, he sings about war. And passages of Scripture like this, they can feel hard sometimes to know what to, to, to do with, can't they? Particularly with such strong language. Speaking about deadly weapons and the, the defeat or the destruction of our enemies and the defeat of those who hate us. We look around thinking, do we, do we really live? Do I really live amidst that kind of war? Do we really have enemies that are seeking to destroy us and enslave us? Is there, is there anyone that feels an utter hatred towards us? Should we sing songs and should we rejoice in their destruction? Because here's the, the thing for Zechariah's song to really become personal for us, the, the Exodus imagery to become in any way truly meaningful to us. We have to have the ability to place and identify an enemy who's standing against us. And then unless you have the clarity to call another person your unequivocal enemy, which I think we should be very cautious about, for most of us, one of the reasons that we might struggle to identify an enemy in our lives is due to, to how secularism has changed how we, we view the world and how we view reality. And particularly one of the outcomes of Western society becoming more and more secular has been that we have stripped ourselves of language necessary to articulate the full spectrum of human experience. What it means to be human cannot be fully spoken of in terms that are solely secular. And so we know what it feels like to be beaten and bruised. And we know what it feels like to wake up week after week in a fight. And we know what it feels like to be chased after at every turn. And yet our world gives us no words to say what we read in Scripture, that there is an enemy. And he is the enemy of our souls. And he creeps around like a lion, seeking to steal and to kill and destroy. And his overwhelming emotion towards a humanity that bears the beauty and the worth of God's image is hatred. And so church, we have, you have an enemy. And to try and articulate a telling of your humanity or a telling of your story is impossible without him as a character who is actively in your story. And let, yet let me show you in Zechariah's song, hearkening back to the Exodus story, the purpose of God's saving of the Israelites from slavery in Egypt was not simply so that they might be set free. Look at verse 74. Look at it. It was so that they might serve God without fear. Do you see that? Not just so they may serve God, but serve him in a state of fearlessness. That's God's saving plan of redemption for the world, to create for himself a people who are fearless, that you may be without fear. Hi. Zechariah shows us it would have been so easy for him to begin to believe that the most significant thing in his life was his newborn son. 
that his future and his worth and his purpose and his peace in life was caught up in little John. It would have been so easy to sing 12 verses or 20 verses or, or 200 verses about John, but he doesn't write a song about John. He sings a song about Jesus. He sings about Jesus, particularly being the fulfiller of the deeper truth of salvation found in the Exodus story. Zechariah reveals the true Exodus whispered of in the past, and he brings it from the past into the present. Reminding us that Jesus came not simply to set us free from bondage of sin, which he did come to do through offering us forgiveness of sins, but so that also as a result of our newfound, restored relationship with God through Christ, Jesus came to set us free from fear by defeating on the cross the enemy of our souls. And so when we give our lives to Christ and receive from him the gift of God's grace and acceptance, the challenge we now face is not to defeat the enemy. He is already enchained. He is already defeated. He exists under the submission of the king. The challenge we face is to continually be aware of that which is of greatest significance. Because isn't it, isn't it just true that there are aspects of our lives at face value, moments, memories, mistakes, people, even dreams, prayers that have been fulfilled or not fulfilled that we are tempted to believe are of greatest significance, and they aren't. There is likely an aspect of our lives this morning that is vying for our attention that the enemy is tempting us to believe is the most significant and the most important thing about us, and it isn't. And if we we fall for his lies and elevate that which is not of greatest significance to the place of greatest significance, we won't be walking in the freedom from fear Christ came to win for us. Because you know what, church? Idols shatter. They do. They will. Idols are fragile. And we, we, we know it, so it's very scary when our joy and our peace and our identity depends on that which at any moment could be taken from us. Rogers Park, the freedom from fear offered in the gospel does not mean that we won't have to face our fears. Because to truly experience freedom in Christ, our idols must be shattered. And that is scary. Church, we will lose many, many things in life that we have been given. Our health, our jobs, our homes, our kids, our marriages. It could be argued that we ultimately one day all will lose it all. Some, some of us may never receive that significant thing that we long for. Things will happen that we cannot be rewritten. And yet we can face this life without fear. Let me read to you Psalm 46. It says it far better than me. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way. Though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her, she shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter, he utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us, 
the God of Jacob is our fortress. Come behold the works of the Lord. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and he shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. RP, that is what is of greatest significance. Hear this because it is on this truth we can build a fearless life. That which is of greatest significance is the coming together of a God who cannot be shaken and a God who cannot be shattered, though the earth gives way, and that same God's desire to be with us and to protect us. Church, Zechariah got it. That in the coming of Christ is a little baby with the most fear-breaking of news that he who holds up the sky and he who holds history and he who cannot be defeated chose not only to fight for us and to give up his life for us, to secure for us forgiveness of sins and eternal life, but he chose to put on human flesh so that whatever fears we face, we would know that we do not face them alone. And it is that God who holds up the sky who is with us. Zachariah spent a season of his life in a state of very literal silence and a very literal state of isolation. And maybe you're, you're heading into another Christmas feeling kept, kept silent, feeling unheard, feeling alone. What's beautiful about the passage that we're looking at today is that when Zechariah was able to speak again, when he was given speech again, he doesn't just speak again, he sings. And in the two verses he does sing about his son John, he writes this, For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. And I can't help wonder if he means this personally. Not, not only that, that John would go on to prepare a way for Christ later in John's life through John being a teacher and a preacher, but could Zechariah mean that John had already prepared a way for the Lord to work in his own life? Through it all, through, through, through the conception, the mysterious name, the regaining of his voice, and through the silence. It was in the vacuum and the loneliness of his own thoughts that Christ began to crystallize for Zechariah. And maybe this Christmas during a time that, that it's celebrated that Christ has drawn near, maybe, may it be your experience, maybe even today, maybe even right now, that Christ draws near to you. May you hear his voice today, even if you can hear nobody else. May he be both to you this Christmas, the horn of your salvation, the gorger of your enemy, the song that you sing, and the child who has come bringing us comfort and bringing us clarity to bring us out of our isolation into a relationship with him, a relationship on which we can build a fearless life where we are known by God, and loved by God. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are everything that you are, that you are both fierce and holy and protective and dangerous, and you're also kind and gentle, and you come into relationship with us so that we would know that we are loved and of value and of worth. God, I thank you that you conquered the world's greatest fear. 
that you made a way in defeating the enemy of our souls. You made a way that we could come back into restoration and restore relationship with you, that our sins could be forgiven, that we could be known and loved by you. God, I pray that if there's anybody here today whose life is riddled with fear, may they know that there is one who has defeated death, who reigns above all fears. He cannot be broken, he cannot be shaken, he cannot be shattered. God, I pray that we will build our life on him, the rock of our salvation. Let's pray.